Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes back John Anderson to discuss his biography of Gene Clark of the Birds. Email us at LetItRollPodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're welcoming back John Anderson, author of Mr. Tambourine Man, The Life and Legacy of the Birds, Gene Clark. John, welcome back. Hey, how are you? I'm good. It's good to have you back, and a good follow-up to Arthur Lee, another guy who was a star on L.A.'s Sunset Strip. But unlike Arthur Lee in Love, Gene Clark and the Birds went national and international and became total superstars. So... And yet, Gene himself never became a superstar as a solo artist, never even had a hit single, and kind of struggles with obscurity. He's been overshadowed by Graham Parsons, uh, a bird, much later on. But I want to read a line from your first paragraph to start this out. Gene Clark was the personification of Bob Dylan's Mr. Tambourine Man, taking us all on his very own trip, that it ended far too soon as the tragedy not the tambourine man himself. I, I thought that was an excellent way to keep this in perspective, that this is a guy who had immense success in the musical field, left a really amazing legacy of great music. And yes, he did suffer and, and, and definitely had a hard road to hoe in life, but it's not all sadness and woe. There's this legacy of great music to celebrate. Exactly. And you know, what's sad about it is that there's so much great music that a lot of people have never heard. Um, you know, and that that's that's the sad part of Gene's career is that he never lost the ability to 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 be creative and to write, you know, fantastic songs. But, you know, a lot of it has you know fallen on deaf ears both then and uh, and uh, since that time. I mean, I remember when I heard Mr. Tambourine Man on the radio. It must have been probably like May of 1965. And there was nothing like it before. It was, it was, I mean, when you hear it out of any kind of a context, just out of the blue in the radio, there was nothing like it anywhere. And, um, you know, the birds just skyrocketed with with Tambourine Man, with a whole new sound. And they really created that whole sense of, of what we call folk rock, the jingle jangle sound of it. But when Gene left the band in 66, he was the first first guy from an upper 
echelon, a, a, a higher tier band in the rock and roll pantheon to quit and go solo. So that was that was kind of new as well. We tended to think of bands as being units and together. And to go solo out of one of the biggest bands, you know, in, in pop music at the time was pretty risky, daring, amazing. And uh, had he had the right management, had he had, uh, you know, a lot of the right decisions made, and had he been willing to to play the, um, you know, the Star Maker machinery game of touring, um, maybe we will be talking about him in a different context than, than we are today. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, and I'm somebody who considers myself a very serious head about 60s rock. And I didn't even get my hands on Gene Clark's solo work. I wasn't even aware of the existence of a lot of Gene Clark's sol solo work until the late 1990s and couldn't get my hands on it until the streaming and MP3 era. So mm -hmm. albums like White Light and No Other that to me easily contend with anything done in the singer-songwriter era and No Other hangs with the work of Fleetwood Mac at its peak. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it was so joyful to me as a Birds fan and a Gene Clark fan who knew about Dillard and Clark, but nothing else to find all this, you know, solo material that had been released in the sixties and seventies and never come forward. And so, yeah, anybody who's serious about this era of rock music should definitely check out the whole Gene Clark of, because yeah, he was, he was solid all the way to the end and, and just an incredible songwriter, singer songwriter. And like you said, he was at the beginning of folk rock acid rock, country mm -hmm. rock, Americana. And then he also was a pioneer of this, we don't really have a word for it, um, the Lindsey Buckingham style of very florid perfectionist production coming out of LA in the late 70s. I guess some people might call it yacht rock, but I think that, that it's, uh, I would never call Gene rock, Clark yacht rock. But, <laughs> <laughs> but well, so serious. go ahead. I think it's nice that um, almost all of his stuff, including a lot of unreleased stuff, is is available. I mean, if you really want to delve into Gene Clark, you can you can get the Birds albums, but you can get No Other on CD, and you can get White Light on CD, and you get Dillard and Clark on CD. You know, and and his last you know officially released recording, So Rebellious a Lover with with Carla Olson. I mean, that's still out as well. So if um, if you want it, if you want it check out Gene Clark. There's a wealth of it out there. And, you know, this stuff doesn't sell in, in big numbers, but it's still there, it's still available, and it's still it's still turning people on and bringing in new fans like, like, like yourself who appreciate what he created. Yeah, it's, it's a delight, and it's all over the streaming services as well. And also YouTube is a great place to get all the rare B-sides and, and, you know, like things like the B-feeder single. You can you can hear that stuff without having to spend a fortune like you had to back in the analog era. But let's mm -hmm. talk about his background. So most people, if they're aware of Gene Clark, know him as the guy in the birds, center stage, holding a tambourine, no guitar, kind of the lead vocalist, although though Jim, a.k.a. Roger McGuinn, um, Roger McGuinn, it was originally named Jim McGuinn, but changed his name for religious reasons. But Roger McGuinn's doing the lead vocals on their big hits, Mr. Tambourine and Turn, Turn, Turn. But, you know, if you get the first and second Birds album, Gene Clark's all over that. He co-wrote and sang lead on Eight Miles High as well. So, you know, that's that's the image people have of Gene Clark, is this massively successful folk rocker with the Beatle haircut and this on these two songs that have been staples of American pop culture for the past, God, what are we on, 60 years now? And, and yet, 
he's also this kind of unknown guy. It's it's a, a fascinating thing. But let's go ahead and hear um, our first song. And let's just go with one of those big birds classics that Gene's famous for. This is the birds doing Gene Clark's I'll Feel a Whole Lot Better. The reason why Oh, I can say And that was the birds with Gene Clark on lead vocals doing I'll Feel a Whole Lot Better, written by Gene, and probably most widely known as I'll Probably Feel a Whole yeah. Lot Better. And it's the key, it's the addition of probably that makes that song so fascinating. It's not, it's like, I will feel a lot better. No, I'll probably, I'll probably feel a whole lot better. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and we were talking offline about how Gene didn't quite fit in with the folk rock vibe at this point, that he's really writing straight ahead rock and roll. But things like putting that word probably in there, I think did kind of, I don't want to say elevate, but did make his stuff fit with the Dylan songs and the folk songs that they were covering at the same time. But let's go back and talk about Gene Clark and his background. Where did he come from and what was his kind of musical apprenticeship? Well, you know, he came from a large family, his 12 siblings, and they were they were quite poor. They, Gene Clark and his uh, family lived in a four-room former coach house in the middle of a large park in Kansas City, the Missouri part of Kansas City, called Swope Park. And, uh, you know, hand-me-down clothes and, and really a, a, a very uh, difficult existence that set his whole family apart. I mean, I talked to some of his, uh, you know, childhood friends and and school friends who said, you know, everybody kind of knew the Clark family because they were poor and they, you know, they they were always wearing old clothes. You know, and Gene talked about all that too, wearing shoes that had holes in them, that sort of thing. But his father had had a love of music and his father used to sing a lot of country music and and bluegrass music. And, And his father taught Gene some chords on the guitar. So he grew up around that kind of music. But, you know, what's strange, though, is he really showed no inclination towards being uh, a deep reader or a deep thinker. He he got his grade 12 education and started to work on at uh, uh, as a groundskeeper on golf courses at his dad, where his dad worked as a groundskeeper. So when you when you look at some of the lyrics that that come to mind later on, like the lyrics of songs on, on the White Light album, or especially on the No Other album, you wonder where did this man get these deep insights that he presents in uh, in his songs? And friends and family members who I talked to, and, and even his, uh, his former wife, they said that it just seemed to just come out of Gene from somewhere. Now, his brother said he loved to read comic books, um, so maybe that kind of fired up his imagination in some way. But I think if you if 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 it was 1962 or early 1963 and you looked at Gene Clark, I don't think anybody would have suspected the man that he did become. He probably would have you know lived his life in in Kansas City, maybe or outside Kansas City, and you know 
maybe worked on golf courses the rest of his life with his dad, but never being able to kind of develop that uh, amazing ability to craft such deep, insightful lyrics. So, uh, but, you know, the pivotal point is, of course, when he's discovered and it's, it's the Lana Turner story of him being discovered, you know, one night. But before we get to dis- his discovery, let's talk about the woodshedding that he was doing, because he was in local bands in the Kansas City area. What kind of music was he playing? Was he a hardcore bluegrass guy, or was he more into pop and rock? Oh, he was very much into into pop, but but the folk boom was happening at the time. And it began in 58 with Tom Dooley, the, you know, the Kingston Trio in the fall of 58. And, you know, the whole, the whole you know, folk music as pop music thing happened and pop music, uh, you know, folk music getting onto the pop charts. And uh, I have a tape of Gene that that uh, his son gave me and it's Gene from 62 or so. And he's singing all the folk music songs of the day, you know, just singing them with a guitar, probably in, in, in a friend's living room who had a tape recorder. And that's what he did. And, and much is made of, of him playing in a band called the Sharks. But I could find very little about that. And even talking to Gene's friends who were close to him at that time say, well, he played with them a little bit and they were kind of a rock and roll band, but but nothing special. It's I think he was in the Rum Runners for a while, which was a folk group, but it's it's the surf riders that becomes the the pivotal point for him. And they played again, Kingston Trio, folk songs kind of of the day. And it's with them that his big break comes. But very much in the folk tradition and that's why he would then join arguably the biggest folk rock group or not sorry not folk rock the biggest folk group of the era in 1963 the new christy minstrels so tell us about that line of tournament moment how did they discover this kid in kansas city well actually by that point gene and his family had moved out to bonner springs which was on the kansas side the other side of of uh, kansas city and um Gene finished school working uh, you know, as a groundskeeper at golf courses, but he sang at night with the, the, the trio called the Surf Riders, and they had nothing to do with surf music, <laughs> but it's just like the name, I guess, connected. And they were just doing folk, you know, popular folk songs of the day, and Gene was the lead singer, the tenor in the band. And um, the new Christian Minstrels were in town, and they were playing a concert, ironically, in Swope Park, because there was a concert bowl in Swope Park, and Gene wasn't at the show, but uh, a few of them, a few of the members of the New Christie Minstrels, happened to be in the club, and I think it might have been called the Castaways Club, where um, Gene and the Surf Riders were performing. And they knew that there was one of the members of the of the Christie Minstrels that was leaving the band. And Gene just stood out so much that they approached him that night and said, "You know, would you be willing to come and join the group?" And, and like I said, I mean, in in terms of commercial pop folk music the new christy minstrels were like the beatles i mean they were huge and they were on the on tv all the time you know they had lots of hit records many of them featuring barry mcguire like green green um in the group and they they, they toured and played arenas they came they came to winnipeg where i live here in in early uh, 64 and played the winnipeg arena that's like ten thousand people so it was a big deal i mean literally plucked out of nowhere and that's why i said the lana turner story of her sitting on a bar stool at Schwab's drugstore in Hollywood and some producer coming in and spotting her, you know, and then, you know, she's whisked off to be a Hollywood star. And that happened with Gene. And um, you kind of think, what if he hadn't done that? What if he'd kind of said, oh, I don't know about this. But he had nothing to lose. He had nothing to lose at all. And and, uh, it was the moment that changed his life. 
And what was his experience once he did get on that plane with the new Christy Minstrels? How long was he in the group, and what was what was that like for him, and how did he do in those circumstances? Well, he joined in August of 63, and I mean, he played the White House uh, when the new Christy, Christy Minstrels, I was want to say new Crusty Nostrils, because that was their nickname. Uh, the new Christy Minstrels performed there, and, you know, touring across the United States, being on albums, being on television, uh, on shows like Hootenanny. But he, he left the group in February of 64 after uh, being in Canada, and I mentioned about being in Winnipeg, uh, after hearing the Beatles. I mean, that's the story that he's always put out and, and uh, others from the new Christy Minstrels that I, uh, that I interviewed kind of uh, corroborated that, that in hearing the Beatles, he decided that that was – his future in music, but there's another side to this. He didn't really fit in. Um, all the all the people, both you know, girls and boys, a nine-piece ensemble. All the people in in the Christies were very, very uh, outgoing and 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 showmanship and having your own shtick, and that's the word that was used. Each each individual member of the group had to stand out in one way or another and have a solo spot, and that wasn't Gene at the time. And and according to a couple of uh, of members, including Larry Ramos, who we interviewed, who went on to be in the association, and Barry Maguire, who we interviewed as well, they said that um, he just didn't stand out. He didn't fit in. So, again, there were rumblings that he was going to get the boot from the band. Uh, so he, he And the Beatles thing happened at the same time. So I guess together they, they led to him uh, leaving. But he didn't go back to Kansas. I mean, he went to – they had a, a, a group – house where they all lived in in Los Angeles in Hollywood and he went back there uh, to to try something new but to, to follow this kind of Beatles British invasion thing and let's hear uh, something he did in his next project this is the Beefeaters and their single from Electric Please Let Me Love You with Gene Clark's song and Gene on lead vocals Let me live in the of your smile Let them see you with me Let them wish they could be As lucky as me To have you here To hold you oh so near Oh yeah, oh yeah let me was the Beefeaters, little-known single from 1964, Please Let Me Love You, featuring Shane Clark on lead vocals and writing the song. So who were the Beefeaters, and how did he get hooked up with them? Well, Gene happened to meet uh, Jim McGuinn. I mean, he didn't become Roger for a few more years. Jim McGuinn, who was also a veteran folky. He'd been a, a, a accompanying guitarist for uh, the Limelighters and uh, Judy Collins. And he, too, was smitten by the sound of the Beatles and the British invasion. And Gene and, and McGuinn met kind of in the outer room, in the, in the lobby of the Troubadour in, uh, in Hollywood, and uh, began singing together. And they found that their voices blended nicely together. And uh, so they were, they were actually looking at doing uh, a, a Peter and Gordon, Chad and Jeremy kind of musical duo. And then... David Crosby comes along and he's been in Les Baxter's Balladeers and he's been kind of a, a solo folky for a few years as well. And he adds a third voice to them. And David Crosby uh, still is one of the finest harmony singers in the business. I mean, his personality makes him difficult to work with at times, but there's no doubting his uh, ability to sing harmony. And the three of them together, usually with 
Gene doubling McGuinn's voice, because as as McGuinn said to me in, in the book, my voice is very thin and reedy, and Gene added a depth to that lead voice. And that's why when you listen to Tambourine Man, or you listen to Turn, 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 and you're hearing McGuinn, but Gene is, is doubling the vocals with McGuinn, and then the guy on the harmony, the third or fifth harmony line, is uh, is Crosby. So they had a beautiful vocal blend together, and um, Jim Dixon was kind of a manager sort of guy and ran World Pacific Records and Studio. He took an interest in them and got them signed to make uh, a record. As the three of them, I don't, th- I don't know if Chris Hillman was involved yet then. I'm not sure that he was, but uh, this would have been sometime in mid 64 ish and you know t- picking a british name i mean you know the beef eaters the guys who guard the tower of london that sort of thing and they they also they then became the jet set after that before coalescing as uh, the birds around thanksgiving of, of 64 but you listen to that song which you just played and it's got a very British kind of a sound. Even the vocals, it almost sounds like they're putting on English accents or British accents, trying to you know trying to get that across. Because that was the music that was dominating the charts at the time. Nobody was thinking folk rock. Nobody was thinking of being different. Everybody was thinking of how can we sound like you know, Jerry and the Pacemakers and uh, and the Beatles and Billy J. Kramer and all of that at the time. And Gene had the ability to write songs within that style. Yeah, and they really do sound much more like Jerry and the Pacemakers or Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas than the Beatles. That, that's kind of the, the pitfall of the Mercy Beat path. It, it, you know, the Beatles become the most dominant influential band in rock history, but the people who actually followed their initial style, with the exception of the Hollies and maybe the Searchers, kind of got stuck in a cul-de-sac. Because if you're not John Lennon and Paul McCartney, you can't pull off that kind of material with the same punch and it and it sounds kind of thin i think the the beef eaters fell into that same trap but because of jim dixon they get the opportunity to go in a different direction how how is it that the birds identity and the folk rock thing coalesce together well it was dixon who was friends with bob dylan and um and albert grossman dylan's manager and uh dylan had recorded a song in 64 as a demo uh mr tambourine man he recorded it with ramblin jack elliott who was, was apparently drunk at the time and so it's kind of rough and ready it it the song in a re-recorded form wouldn't appear until uh dylan's spring of 65 album and bringing it all back home but this demo kind of got around to a few people in the music business including dixon and at that point i mean what's interesting is, is the guys in the birds with the exception of michael clark the the drummer you know crosby mcguinn uh clark and hillman none of them came from rock and roll bands none of them came as as, as hillman said you know we, we didn't start off playing roll over beethoven in somebody's garage we all came from folk or bluegrass and and even hillman who was a bluegrass musician but he was in a folk ensemble called the green grass group in in 64 in uh, in and around la so they came at rock and roll from a folk and a harmony singing perspective and yet they were and you listen to pre-flight a lot of the early demo recordings of the you know the the beginnings of the birds they're going for that british sound as 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 you know evidenced by the track we just listened to and it's it's dixon that brings in the song and says you know hey why don't you guys take this song mr tambourine man and work up an arrangement for it that you know that brings kind of the folk element into it too and you know credit to mcguinn he's the guy that that really you know created that jingle jangle rickenbacker 12 string sound 
that would characterize the birds, and certainly Mr. Tambourine Man would be you know the first evidence uh, of that for us. So credit to Jim Dixon for for doing that. And initially, the guys in the birds didn't want to do it, especially David Crosby. He was very vehemently opposed to taking Mr. Tambourine Man or or a Dylan song and uh, rearranging it. Yeah, and it's amazing how many of the disasters of the birds' histories are laid at the feet of David Crosby. And he's just like a bad decision-making machine in this period. Um, and and McGuinn had already known Crosby and had been warned away from him. Like he went, met Crosby a couple years earlier, went home to to Crosby's parents' house. His, his father, Floyd Crosby, was a award Oscar-winning cinematographer. So yeah. he was privileged. And the people at the party are warning him, hey, what are you doing with this guy? <laughs> like, you know? but yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, he was he was like the, the enfant terrible of, of the folk scene in, in Southern California. But you, as I said, you couldn't you couldn't deny his uh, his uh, vocal ability and harmony ability. But even and, and, and you're right on. I mean, it's a McGuinn was warned by friends. You don't know if you want to work with this Crosby guy. But McGuinn and, and Clark couldn't deny the vocal blend that they got as as the three of them. So I guess they decided to put up with with it. But Crosby was a bully. And by his own admission, he was really mean to Gene. See, Crosby was like, like you said, he was, you know, well, well, well educated, got kicked out of lots of schools, but he came from a very privileged background and, and his mother was very literate and his father was very artistic and he grew up around all of that. So he thought he was better than everybody else, but especially so for Gene. Here was Gene, a guy who had a grade 12 education from, you know, rural Kansas, you know, family of 12, you know, who were poor. And uh, there's David Crosby, who's, you know, again, this this privileged guy. So he belittled Gene, and he talked Gene out of playing rhythm guitar, because initially Gene was the, was the second guitar player in the band, and Crosby managed to talk that, to get the Gretsch out of his, out of Clark's hands and into his hands. But when I sat down with Crosby to interview him, uh, and I spent about two hours with him before a Crosby Stills Nash show in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Uh, I actually got him tearing up. I got him tearing up, talking about how mean he was to Gene Clark. And he admitted, I was, I was horrible to him, and I feel bad about it now. Uh, I was a, I was a jerk back then. I have used worse words than that, um, you know. And I guess you know, as, as I talked with McGuinn a, f- a few days after that. McGuinn said, you know, the thing with Crosby is that since Gene died, he's kind of had to reflect on that, and he feels guilty about all of that. But there's no doubting he was a pain in the butt for everybody in the birds or anybody associated with the birds. Yeah, and it's one of these sort of merciless young male dynamics where these three super talented, super ambitious individuals are jostling for position internally while projecting a united front and competing Mm -hmm. as a group. Very similar, I think, to the Rolling Stones dynamic. And unfortunately, Gene Clark finds himself in the unenvied role of being kind of the Brian Jones in the band, meaning he's the initial leader, the the guy that's the big songwriter, the big vocalist, the handsome, good-looking guy in the middle, and he gets pushed to the side as things progress. But let's take a sponsor break, and when we come back, we'll talk about the bird's explosion on the Sunset Strip. The birds have come together. Jim Dixon has has assembled, or well, Clark and, and Crosby and McGuinn come together, and then Jim Dixon helps them find a rhythm section, Chris Hillman and uh, and Michael Clark on drums. Michael Clark picked mostly because he looked like Brian Jones, more so than his <laughs> drum chops. So uh, this is... Very much a classic folk rock band. These are not rockers. These guys do not have years and years of you know dance hall experience, rocking a crowd and playing hard R and B. These these guys were doing 
Chad Mitchell trio was where, you know, Jim McGuinn came out of. And so it's not even the kind of Woody Guthrie, hardcore, you know, Sleepy John Estes, something kind of folk that Bob Dylan was into. This is much more the Kingston trio kind of bubblegum pop in the Weavers tradition that they were doing. But they they get a deal with Columbia. They record Mr. Tambourine Man. It hasn't come out yet, but they start playing a club called Ciro's on the Sunset Strip. Tell us what happened when they hit the stage in L.A. Well, the single hadn't been released yet. And then uh, I guess in March, they recorded it in January of 65. But uh, Columbia Records was a little uncertain about releasing it because it was so different. And it was like nothing else on the pop charts at that time. But they, they took a gig at Ciro's in March and uh, April of 65. And initially, I mean, Ciro's had been a supper club in like 30s and 40s and 50s, you know, where the Hollywood elite would go. But they were trying to court the uh, the younger, hip, rock and roll kind of a crowd. So the birds were hired to perform there. And and initially, you know, fairly sparse crowds, but literally within a week, they had lineups around the block because their sound was so different. And here's the thing that, that you know, you listen to Bird's music and you listen to it. I mean, you listen to the lyrics, you listen to the harmonies, you listen to the, the arrangement and the jingle jangle guitar. But um, they were a dance band. And that's what attracted, you know, people to come see them at Ciro's because they were a great dance band, you know, to dance to. And Bob Dylan came to visit them as well. And this is even after they'd recorded Tambourine Man, but it, it, would, it would be released about a week after Dylan was there. But he kind of gave them the stamp of approval by uh, joining them on stage to do uh, a, a couple of songs or two. So Ciro's kind of looms large in, in the um, arrival of the birds and, and the birds, you know, becoming the big band, you know, on the sunset. Sunset Strip. And, you know, we talked uh, in a previous show about Arthur Lee becoming the prince of the Sunset Strip. And that wouldn't have happened without the birds having left the Sunset Strip and began touring, you know, first the United States and then all over the world. And that left a hole in, in the clubs and the Sunset Strip that Arthur and Love were able to, to kind of fill in. But the birds were the kingpins before that time. And they helped really launch a whole L.A. folk rock sound that you know, was followed by the Turtles and the Wee Five and Sonny and Cher and everybody after that. Once Tambourine Man was uh, released in, in April, it, it, uh, it took off fast, which, which when you consider how different it was, it just had such appeal to it. It's just a, such a fun and joyous song. And then to, to follow that in the fall, I mean, there was a single in between, all I really want to do. But to follow it with Turn, 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 I mean, that song is timeless. It, 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 and the Bird's arrangement of it is just so exquisite. And it's, it's you know, for, for a lot of people, myself included, it's the high watermark for the for the original five birds yeah i i i I might come down on the eight miles high side myself but yeah it's an incredible achievement and the popularity of those two songs that's something i think we have to emphasize i mean not only have they become classics that are still played on the radio today and heard in grocery stores and elevators and everywhere but they were immensely popular number one hits both in the u.s and in england and sold gazillions of copies and Gene Clark didn't write either of those songs but he had the b-side yeah. of both of those and tell us a little bit about how the music business works who makes the money off a single like that well the songwriters always make the money and uh that's that that's I, I I've 
taught a course here. I do virtual uh, classes on music topics. And one of them I've done that's been very popular is, is taking care of the music business. And it's always a revelation for for people who don't know a lot about the music business to discover that the guys who are playing on the single, whether they were studio musicians or guys in the band, aren't necessarily the ones that are making the money on it. It's the songwriting. And back in those days, the songwriter got paid before anybody else. Before the band would see any royalties as a group, the songwriter got his or her money first. So the money is always in the songs. And uh, an A-side and a B-side make the same amount of money. So turn, turn, turn may have sold millions of copies and certainly put some money in, in Pete Seeger's pocket because he's credited as arranging it. Um, but Gene Clark had the B-sides. So his wallet was a lot fatter than the others. And that only increased the animosity within the group towards Gene. Someone once described the birds, the original five birds, as a den of vipers. <laughs> they were so, you know, <laughs> bitter and jealous and nasty. You know, they weren't they weren't buddies. And they it's like the Beatles grew up with a shared experience of playing, you know, pubs and clubs and going to, to to Hamburg and that sort of thing, that shared experience that the birds really didn't have. So they never grew to like each other, but they made great music together. And so Gene Gene kind of became single out for for I mean he was driving Ferraris. You know, as McGuinn one said to me in his interview, he said, you know, he was driving a Ferrari and I was still taking the bus. I mean, that's an overstatement. But certainly uh, by writing the B-sides and by writing most of the, the original songs on the first two albums, uh, Gene's wallet was a lot bigger than the others. And that, that, of course, increased the animosity. Yeah. And it also, because of his strong songwriting, they become an albums band way before basically anybody else in, in the American rock scene did that almost everything was oriented around singles even the beatles are having their albums chopped up by capital and you know things like beatles six and uh something new by the beatles are being put out all the time and so there's not this feeling like these albums are these sacred works of art or anything but these two birds albums come out and they're just stocked with great songs and a huge chunk of that is gene clark's material and even though he never wrote a massive hit single for the birds He's the dominant voice on the album, especially the first album. The second album, it's kind of watered down, and they even excluded some of his strongest songs to make room for much weaker songs by Crosby and McGuinn, and also kind of random covers. I mean, they've got room for Oh, Susanna, of all things, uh, and they don't have room for uh, She Don't Care About Time, which is the incredible B-side to Turn, Turn, Turn. And um, I'm tempted to go ahead and play that. I've got uh i guess i'll go ahead and do it I'll, I'll, this is the bird she don't care about time this is the b-side to turn 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 always and staircases every day to climb to go up to my white wall room out on the end of time where i And that was The Birds featuring Jane Clark doing his song, She Don't Care About Time. And this is a song that the Beatles had actually been in the studio when they recorded it or heard an early demo. And George Harrison was blown away. And it's just, I mean, the artistic growth between the Beefeaters' Please Let Me Love You single just a year earlier and what he's doing, you know, and through I'll Feel a Whole Lot Better and then to 
she don't care about time. He's he's on this fast track of just incredible uh, artistic acceleration, and yet there's not even room for that on the album. So, um, what's the dynamic with the Birds' management? I mean, you've also got Terry Meltzer who came in to produce their first two albums, and and brought, who he brought in the Wrecking Crew to produce to play backup. McGuinn played guitar on Mr. Tambourine Man, but otherwise they just it was just the three singers on that record they did play on all their own album and you can tell from the session tracks that when you had the wrecking crew in there it took them i don't know three hours to get mr tambourine man down and the birds had to do dozens of takes to do their tracks but they did get it done and it is high quality stuff so it's just kind of an efficiency decision but what's going on what's the power dynamic with melcher versus dixon and their other management partner and Crosby and McGuinn and Clark, who's in charge and, and how's it all shaken out? Oh, well, David Crosby thought he was in charge. <laughs> and he, he convinced, uh, he convinced Dixon and McGuinn that they should get rid of Melcher because Melcher didn't like uh, Crosby. As a matter of fact, there's a quote I have in the book where uh, Chris Hillman said this. He said, you know, I, I talked to Terry Melcher, he said, Charlie before he died. And he said, you know, Chris, the worst person ever that haunts my life do you know who it was and chris said of course well charles manson he said no david crosby <laughs> <He> ruined, <laughs> david crosby ruined my life um so he was a crosby was a pain in the butt for for everybody but melcher kind of didn't like gene quite as much and i'm not sure of the dynamics of that begging terry you know mother was doris day so grew up with a silver spoon in his mouth and gene being regarded as the hick from all the others crosby and mcguinn were able to convince melcher to lessen gene's impact and lessen gene's songs on the turn 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 album and that's why she don't care about time is is uh, is on there and you're right the songs from mcguinn and crosby either alone or together on that second album turn 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 they are grossly inferior to she don't care about time or the day walk which was recorded around the same time so again it's the den of vipers stuff you know going on and it would be the last album until many years later that melcher would produce for um the birds and certainly by then crosby and and well everybody was gone except uh mcguinn but you, you just gotta go back to david crosby and i think all of this well i know all of this played very heavily all of these you know dynamics and conflicts played very heavily on gene and his leaving the band you know not long after a few months uh, later was I mean he was a guy of simple virtues and he just as as Chris Hillman said he just wasn't made for the Hollywood music machinery that you know as as Hillman said eats you up and spits you out and unfortunately Gene wasn't able to deal with those realities uh, at at the time and you know of course much is made of you know him leaving the band because he wouldn't fly well he did fly. And he did fly in his solo career, just not very often. <laughs> but it wasn't that he had a, a, a pathological fear of flying. He just didn't like it. And he was he was nervous about being on planes and flying. But that's just, I mean, that's kind of the, the tag that got hung on him, the bird who wouldn't fly when he left the band. But all of these... All of these personal and, and, you know, band dynamics and relationships, plus the adulation that uh, that the birds receive, not just the financial success, but you know, people treating them like gods and being given, given the title, you know, the American Beatles. All of the expectations that hung on that 
was very difficult for Gene to deal with. And so it, all of this conspired to have him leave the group. Uh, and ironically, around the same time that they would release what what was a, an absolutely brilliant single. And like Tambourine Man the year before, there was no context for it. Eight Miles High, same thing. First time I heard it, was like, what is this? There was no context for it at all. And it was bringing in, you know, John Coltrane jazz and, and Ravi Shankar, you know, sitar stylings. It was like nothing before. And Gene wrote the, the lyrics to it. And of course, McGuinn and Crosby got their names added to it as well. And that was just enough for Gene. Yeah, it's this incredible ahead of its time single that's, you know, right up there with with Paint It Black or anything that the Rolling Stones or the Yardbirds were doing at yeah. the same time to pioneer psychedelia, very much pointing in the direction where San Francisco bands would go in just a couple of years. But like you said, it was mm. kind of the last straw. Uh, part of it was the timing that came around as, as part of the last straw for for Gene. And, and he leaves the band and... You know, one thing, it's it's easy to feel sorry for Gene, but at the same time that all this is going on, he's racing his Ferrari up and down Sunset Boulevard, <laughs> frequently with Steve McQueen, who's now his running buddy. And he's on the sly dating Michelle Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas, and she's easily the queen of the folk rock scene, one of the most beautiful <laughs> celebrities. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, going at that time. So, you know, Gene is not... He's definitely, you know, if, if he's Persephone in the underworld, he's eating the pomegranate seed by the handful here. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. I like that. And, uh, and, you know, but it takes him a little while to get going. I mean, one thing, you know, looking into this a few years ago when I first discovered the, the Gene Clark solo work, you know, you see that he had a solo album out in 1967 and you think well he must have got right to it put out an album why didn't this make more of an impact but it took him quite a while to get it together and and that's unfortunately what hurt his uh, trajectory after leaving the birds there you see if if management and record label had known a couple of months before they would have gotten them into the studio had a single ready already recording tracks for an album, publicity and promotional campaign ready. And, you know, within a few weeks of him leaving the birds, it's Gene Clark of the birds. This is his brand new solo single, blah, blah, blah. But it took a year before you saw, I mean, his first solo single, he left the band what, around, officially around March of 66. His first solo single wasn't released till December. And then the album came out in February, the same week that the Bird's new album came out as well. But uh, also there was confusion in the marketplace because, and I remember this going to record stores because you know, I, I like Gene Clark. I'd read in Hit Parader magazine he'd left, so I was interested to see what he would do. And there's this album. He's you know, front and center of the picture. But it says Gene Clark with the Gosden brothers. And I'm thinking, who the heck are they? And you turn the cover over and there's these two guys playing acoustic guitars. No, not even a picture of Gene. And I'm thinking, what, what, what is this? And unfortunately, Gene got manipulated by Jim Dixon and Eddie Tickner, who were managing him. And uh, they also managed the Gosden brothers, who were unknowns. And they saw a chance to piggyback the Gosden brothers onto Gene. And that was terrible that they that that Dixon and Tickner did that because it, it created confusion in the marketplace. Because in fact, when I interviewed Larry Marks, who was the producer of the album, he said, "When we made that album, uh, it was Gene and studio musicians 
play, including Hillman and, and, and Michael Clark, Glenn Campbell, Leon Russell, these guys who were all on the album, said there was no Gosden Brothers. There's no talk of the Gosden Brothers. I didn't even know who they were. It's after he finished the album that Dixon then took it and overdubbed the Gosden Brothers harmonies onto a couple of songs, not even all of songs. So it's unfortunate that the album came out so late um, and people people have short memories, especially in like 65, 66, 67, when you're bombarded with a new pop song and, you know, 10 new hits every week. Who's Gene? Oh, yeah, he used to be in The Birds uh, a year ago. So it's it instead of having that great, you know, the rocket launch coming out of The Birds, building on that and, and having a single that kind of sounded Birdsy-like to kind of remind people, oh, yeah, he used to be in The Birds. Um, it just never happened for him and it was instead of a bang it came out with a whimper and and then you know he he's having all these personal problems his relationship with michelle phillips ends up getting her briefly kicked out of the mamas and the papas and becomes this huge uh, drama um but i'll go ahead and play play the song from he land where he landed because he does find another musical partner like in the birds he needed jim mcquinn and david crosby to add that musical element and and in his first solo album, it's basically Leon Russell who adds that musical, who's a musical partner for a lot of those songs. But finally, he finds Doug Dillard. And let's go ahead and hear Dillard and Clark's Out on the Side. And there could be at any moment a change. And if perhaps to put us down. I won't act like I've seen something strange Baby, I just won't make a sound But when the door closes before my eyes And that was Gene Clark with Dillard and Clark doing Out on the Side. And this is, you know, when I first became aware of the birds, it was the 80s, I was a 12-year-old, I'm trying to get into 60s rock, figure out what's going on. I'm reading the Rolling Stone record guide, and the only other thing that Gene Clark had done that survived long enough to be in the Rolling Stone record guide in the early 80s was this Dillard and Clark album, the fantastic expedition of Dillard and Clark. That gets four stars, this wonderful write-up about how it's this landmark country rock album that came out this, around the same time as the band's music from Big Pink, mm-hmm. a little bit before you know the great white wonder, Bob Dylan bootleg, and so it's, you know, and very much around the same time as the bird's sweetheart of the rodeo with Graham Parsons, where they go country. So it seemed very much like he's on the cutting edge of yet another trend, this time country rock. What was Dillard and Clark? How did they get together? And how did they make such a great album and not have any more impact? Well, you know, Gene, Gene knew Doug Dillard from even before the birds, because the Dillards had been around the Hollywood you know, scene and bluegrass scene. And they both came from Missouri, uh, the Dillards from Salem, Missouri, and Gene coming originally from Tipton and then Kansas City, Missouri. So they had that Ozark Mountain kind of connection to them, and they had a love of country music together. And, you know, Gene had put a couple of bands together that played a little bit in and around Hollywood when his solo album came out. And he'd done some other recordings that didn't, you know, come out and some singles and things. But working with Doug was unnatural for Gene, and it was a comfort level for Gene because he was working with a guy who wasn't 
competitive. It wasn't a, you know, it was a guy who was on his level, and they they shared a lot in common beyond just the music. So Dylan and Clark really represents for Gene uh, a comfortable place to uh, create music. Then you know, again, they 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 very much were um, in tune with each other, and then bringing in Bernie Ledden, who who respected both of them deeply, and you know, Bernie Ledden was largely unknown beyond Hollywood at the time. And, you know, the fantastic expedition of Dillard and Clark, released in the fall of 1968, it predates you know, Poco's debut album, it predates uh, the Brito Brothers, The Gilded Palace of Sin. It captures a really unique blend of sounds. And it's it's a very contemporary bluegrass kind of a sound, but it still draws on bluegrass roots. But it's got those, you know, jabs at a country sound and a great harmony singing in it. It's it's an album that still remains appreciated. And it, it's not an album that's that's stuck in time. It it has a bit of a timeless feel and style to it. And so many people I interviewed, both for my Desperados book, Desperados, The Roots of Country Rock, and my you know, my Gene Clark book, um, they cite that album. Even young younger you know, musicians and what would you call alt country or Americana cite that album as being extremely influential to them. And a happy time for Gene. And and everybody around Gene I talked to said the same thing. He was a, he was really happy. And you listen to the songs and the writing, especially, on, um, for example, on the second album, we have songs like Through the Morning, Through the Night, and Polly, both of which would be recorded by Alison Krauss and uh, Robert Plant on their uh, Raising Sand album. So the songs have, have remained timeless. But a happy time for Gene, for sure. But again... He's so far out of the public awareness and the public limelight. And even to call the band Dillard and Clark, and not Clark and Dillard, I mean, because Gene had a bigger success than, than Douglas did, uh, again, recognizes some of the mistakes that were made, and Gene didn't want to tour. He didn't want to have to, to to you know travel all over and maybe do an opening set for some other big act, that sort of thing. He didn't want to play the rock and roll game. Yeah, and, and your description of their debut gig at the Troubadour, very high-profile gig. The expectations are high. People have heard the demos, and and it's just a disaster that he and Doug Dillard, who both love to drink and party, he hit the bar at 5 o'clock after the sound check, and, and by 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, there are several martinis deep, and there's allegations that somebody had some tabs of acid that they were passing around. So, <laughs> yeah, the show's a complete debacle, and it reminded me very much of uh, descriptions of Graham Parsons and the Flying Burrito Brothers mm-hmm, trying to play mm-hmm. live, where they just hadn't rehearsed a show. They could play great music, they could write great songs, but they hadn't worked on things like how do we start this song? How do we stop <laughs> this song? What order do we play our songs on? How do we arrange ourselves around the microphones to do our harmony blend? Stuff like that. They just hadn't put in the work to polish this, uh, you know, art project into an entertainment package. And so, you know, and then the the downfall of Dillard and Clark is classic. You know, Dillard. Dillard's girlfriend becomes heavily involved in the band and wants to sing. So there's, you know, the classic Yoko Ono element. Uh, you know, no Spinal Tap story would be complete without the the ambitious girlfriend. Uh, a great violinist <laughs> comes in who wants to jam with Doug Dillard, who's this world-class banjoist, and the band kind of becomes this bluegrass thing. And so it falls apart. Then he stays on A&M Records. He does a, a, an album, White Light, produced by Jesse Ed Davis. I'm having to compress a bunch of stuff just because there's so much I want to get to 
we have no time. But, you know, he partners with Jesse Ed Davis, makes this masterpiece White Light album, but same deal, no tour. Doesn't, you know, then he records part of another album. It's not released at all until a year later when Jim Dixon discovers it in the vaults and talks AM into putting it out in the Netherlands, where Gene Clark is unaccount is, you know, this big star. So that this great album, Roadmaster, comes out belatedly. Um, and then uh, there's a birds reunion. And this is kind of Gene's last big shot at the big mm -hmm. time. What happened to that big birds reunion on on asylum in nineteen seventy-three? Well, expectations were huge. I mean, Crosby had you know, become, you know, certainly bigger than any of the other guys in his post-Birds career with Crosby, Sills, Nash, and Young. And so he was – he designated himself and convinced the others that he was going to be the producer on the album because, I mean, he could point to more gold records on his wall than the others could. And, uh, you know, initially – because I've, I've talked to the, the, the four guys, not – not Clark, but or not Clark and Clark. <laughs> I guess I talked to the three guys uh, involved with it, and they said they all came in with with high expectations. As did David Crosby, who was funding it for for uh, you know his Asylum Records. But as Crosby said, he blew it. He said he he kept in the back of his mind what McGuinn had said to him that he'd never make it. Uh, leaving the birds, and they didn't need him. So it was kind of revenge. And instead of having that signature Rickenbacker jingle jangle sound, updated, you know, I mean, they're not going to do Bells of Rimney again. Uh, they, Crosby submerged that sound, and he said he did it intentionally, just to kind of to show McGuinn, I'm bigger than you. I'll, you know, I'll decide what we sound like. And it really, it suffered from a lack of strong material, even to the point where they had to cover two Neil Young songs on the album. And Hillman said to me, he said, you know, I was holding back my best songs because I had to, I, I wanted to do a solo album after this. So it's kind of sad that uh, initial excitement and enthusiasm kind of died, you know, withered on the vine very quickly. But the guy who came out of it all strong was Gene Clark. I mean, he, he had continued to be a strong songwriter. You know, you mentioned the White Light album. The songs are brilliant. Brilliant, brilliant songs, but by that point, it was Gene Who uh, in the marketplace. Um, so he came in with some very strong songs. He sings uh, the, the the Dylan songs on the on the album, and the the album Neil comes. Yeah, Neil Young. Yeah, Neil Young. Thank you. Uh, the album comes out, and it critics are are pretty much savaged it that it didn't have a birdsy sound to it, and even the songs that were on it weren't very good. But critics did note. Gene Clark's contributions to the album being the strongest part of it. It wasn't like Gene was holding on to his best material for another album, nothing like that at all. He 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 went into it with a commitment and and certainly outshone the others. And as a result, Geffen gave him a, a solo deal coming uh, coming off of that album. Now it's interesting that I remember reading in actually in Rolling Stone magazine uh, back then that the plan was to release this big you know Big Birds reunion album and then have a tour. That would have the reunited Buffalo Springfield, the reunited Birds, and I think maybe even the reunited Hollies on, on it as well. This massive big tour. But, you know, again, all torpedoed when the album got, you know, bad reviews and or tepid, tepid reviews, <clears throat> excuse me, and didn't sell in the numbers that they had hoped it would. But Gene came out of that great. And, and to come out with a contract with uh, Asylum Records and then to produce no other. Wow. I mean, that 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 is his career high watermark for sure is no other.
yeah, it's a it's an album that's got a big cult reputation as a masterpiece, and and like I said, precedes the the Lindsey Buckingham, Stevie Nicks, Christine McVie style Fleetwood Mac would would take to amazing commercial success in short mm-hmm. order. And I just want to mention Thomas Jefferson K, who's the guy who produced the album and becomes kind of Gene Clark's last, not last, but one of his maybe his greatest musical partner. They had this real synergy, but K was already kind of in bad graces with David Geffen because he had produced this Bobby Newworth solo album. And Bobby Newworth is the guy in all the Bob Dylan movies that's mean to people over, over <laughs> Bob's shoulder. And and yeah, a talented guy and everything, but ends up producing, you know, the six-figure albatross of an album. And, and then Kay and Gene Clark come in with no other that costs, again, $100,000, which at the time, you know, that's probably half a million dollars or $700,000 now. Um, and David Geffen's not happy with it. How does Gene Clark handle his relationship with David Geffen when <laughs> By threatening him in a nightclub. You know, they got into a shouting match and almost a fist fight. You know, because Gene, again, with excesses of drinking, um, you know, the the darker side of Gene came out and he confronted Geffen about that. And so Geffen let the album twist in the wind. But you're right about Tommy Kay. I mean, Tommy Kay saw this as saw the, these recording sessions as his his magnum opus and throwing everything but the kitchen sink into each of the tracks. What's interesting is, you know, in recent years, you've got the um, the the original recordings before all the overdubs of the songs that that would end up on no other and they 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 sound just as good if not better without without the 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 banshee wailing singing and the screaming wah-wah electric violin i'm not saying that that stuff didn't sound good but when you hear you know the song stripped back to how they recorded with just you know bass drums keyboards that sort of thing there's they're great songs there's there's no question about it and they didn't necessarily need to have all those overdubs on it and you know Tommy Kay was chastened by that experience. And the second album he produced with Gene, Two Sides to Every Story, was much more stripped back. But you still got these brilliant songs without having to have, you know, massive overdubs on them. So it, it again, what shines through in, in both of these albums is the songwriting. And, and Gene's songwriting never lacked quality and he never lost the ability to be able to write great songs with or or without massive arrangements and um there's a lot that goes on in the rest of gene clark's life that we don't have time to get into but i just want to read this one quote this is from john york who was a bass player who had played with the birds and played with clark in his touring period later on and he's got this great quote that explains what it's like to deal with people like late period Gene Clark. And he says, you had these guys with great hearts, sensitive, wonderful people who for some reason created these personalities that were in a certain sense larger than life. So dealing with them on a day-to-day basis was almost impossible. You couldn't just have a real relationship with somebody because you had the person they really were. And then at any time that person could start to fade and this sort of monster would evolve. And uh, yeah, it just the, the end part of the book paints this really dreary picture of gene clark's last years in la he did produce some some he continued to make music work with carla olson and others mm-hmm. he reunited with mcguinn and, and hillman for mcguinn clark and hillman kind of got booted out of that when they toured and, and his behavior you know was was mm-hmm. just unmanageable and then it's tom petty covering i'll feel a whole lot better that's kind of the death blow what happened there well all of a sudden i mean 
I, as, as you said at the start of, of the program, I'll Feel a Whole Lot Better was such a great song. Tom Petty recognizing that and covering it and, you know, Full Moon Fever sold you know, in, in the multi-millions. So Gene is the writer of the song. He's looking at a check of, you know, close to $100,000. And like you said as well, I mean, he got kind of turfed out of McGuinn, Clark and Hillman because he, he'd become too unmanageable because of the, his cocaine use and his and his drinking and, and and drugging in excess so all of a sudden you know this money lands in his in his hands and all the hangers on you know gene's the party gene's got the dope gene's got the money so all the hangers on come come out of the woodwork with gene and his last gig literally within weeks uh, before he passed away i mean he's a shell of him, of himself i mean he looks emaciated his voice is gone he's a it's a ramshackled show that you know friends went to and were embarrassed to be there and you know do you blame tom petty do you just say well, if it wasn't for tom petty's check some people did that he interviewed this well if it wasn't for tom petty gene might still be alive i don't know about that but um it, it certainly by 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 putting that money into gene's hands it it was i mean it just led to the downfall yeah and hopefully there's a line from gene clark you've found from another interview that he said if i die and i get there and graham parsons is there i'll know i'm in hell <laughs> hopefully they didn't bump into each other uh, in the afterlife and there's just so much more to the story and you tell it really brilliantly in the book so i encourage people to go out and and read the book my guest has been john anderson the book is mr tambourine man the life and legacy of the birds jane clark just a great story tons of ups and downs i do want to mention though he lived quite well off his birds royalties, particularly in the early 70s. And there was a really blissful period where he married, had a couple of kids and lived a real happy ending sort of life for a couple of years. So it's not all sadness and woe with Gene Clark. There was lots of ups with the downs. And, and John Anderson, thank you so much for telling us this story. Thanks for inviting me. It's always a pleasure. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast. And check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Thursday, Nate welcomes James Gavin to discuss 80s pop legend George Michael. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett.
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 